0: Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you are in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Sasha Um, and in the midst of all the trials and tribulations of life we have uh, this this word from the Lord to rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice and if we're just looking for a reason to rejoice there are so many reasons to rejoice I want to rejoice that my son Stephen is here this evening and his family is here and we prayed for them to be able to make it here and they made it here I'm getting to it, I'm getting to it And I really want to rejoice, and Sasha, stand up for just a minute. Just stand up. Come on, get out of that bathroom and stand up. Just stand up there. So Sasha passed her test today, and she's a licensed driver today in the state of Nevada. And that happened as soon as was humanly possible after her 16th birthday. She's worked really hard on that, and I'm very proud of her. And very proud of her mom, who had the vision for this. And she said, you got your license on the, I got my license on my 16th birthday. I mean, it used to be a lot easier. You went to, I think I went to class for five days, passed the little test and then showed up on my 16th birthday and smashed into something on the parallel parking and got yelled at by the highway patrolman. But I still got my license on my 16th birthday. But you know, with the current system, which is probably better for kids to learn, to drive better, where they have to drive all these hours. I mean, we, Sasha and I have done 75 hours together. That's a lot of driving. And a lot of it was just kind of wasted gas driving in a sense because we weren't really going anywhere. We were learning stuff, but it was uh, with the gas prices shooting sky high, but very much worth it. And uh, I just want to say that Tonya and I are very proud of Sasha today. And today is the birthday of our daughter, Bethany. Also, and, uh, and tomorrow's my birthday, together with Rogelio. So a lot of reasons to rejoice, and God is so good to us. He really is. Amen. So we're going to look, be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 19 this evening, and um, I, I don't know how far we're going to get in the notes, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we're going to begin with verse 9 of chapter 19. I don't want to try to rush through this very too quickly, uh, because this is the culmination of the book of Revelation, really. The beginning of the end is the second coming uh, of Jesus. And in this part, we've been looking at the second coming of Jesus from the time of the seventh trumpet, from Revelation 14 all the way through Revelation 20. We're going to include that in this uh, section also, although that deals with the millennial age but we will get to that. I don't know if we will tonight or not, but we will get to it. Uh, but I was thinking as I was praying before service started um, about what we were talking about on Sunday and how Paul, uh, speaking to Agrippa, he, he said that I am on trial for the hope, which is the promise that was made to our fathers. You know, And I was thinking, you know, When that promise was made to the fathers, if we don't go back any further than Abraham, it had been, at the time Paul was speaking, 2,000 years since that promise had been made to Abraham. And over that 2,000 years, other than one exception with Elijah going up in a chariot of fire, perhaps, you know, there really hadn't, and and Elisha fell on, you know, Elisha was buried and they threw it. A soldier in there, and he came back to life. I mean, there's a few little resurrections spatterings in the Old Testament, but this idea of someone being raised from the dead, never to die again, had had never happened. And then it happened, and God raised up His Son Jesus from the dead, and our the whole church is is built on that truth. And now it's been another two thousand years that people have been reading about the second coming of Jesus, and he hasn't come yet. And in every generation, we continue to preach and to believe that Jesus is coming back. And we have every reason, by study of prophecy and just by looking at the situation that the world is in today, to believe that he is coming back very soon. And yet, no man knows the day nor the hour. And sometimes we can get quite discouraged And sometimes we can get the feeling like truly uh, maybe he's never coming back or at least he's not coming back in my lifetime. We don't dare say it because we're Christians, but we get that feeling on the inside like nothing's ever going to get any better, that we've just almost been led astray. And, you know, many people have dropped out of church just for that very reason, because they had a hope and the hope was not based strictly on the word of God. And so they lost that hope and that fire of that hope burned out. But we have a hope today that is built on the prophetic word of God. And we can trust in that word of God. And we can believe that if God raised up Jesus from the dead, he is the first fruits of our resurrection and we shall all be raised from the dead. And so what we read today Like I said, it's something people have read for 2,000 years, and they've waited for it. And we wait for it today. But that doesn't make it, the fact that it's been 2,000 years, doesn't make it any more a fairy tale than the promises made to Abraham that they waited for 2,000 years for. And we have to remember that the problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. The problem is that we sinned against God, And we're locked into these bodies that are locked into this age that has had a curse put upon it and that it's been limited in so many ways for its own protection, okay? And so what seems like 2,000 years to us, the way we count time, to God it's just two days. So it's only been two days since Jesus was raised from the dead and he is coming back Very soon. So let's look at verse 9 of chapter 19. I just felt in my heart to share that to be an encouragement to you. It says in verse 9 that these things are so real. These things are so true. And it says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is not a joke. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to here, and it's in your notes, uh, because we already talked about this when we were beginning in the book of Revelation, is that there are seven blesseds in the book of Revelation. There are seven places in the book of Revelation, the seven beatitudes of the book of Revelation, where it says, blessed is the one who has done this. Blessed, uh, and you'll see them in your notes in chapter 1, verse 3, those who read this and who listen to the words of this prophecy. In 14, 13, those who die in the Lord, they're blessed. You're blessed if you die in the Lord. In chapter 16, 15, those who stay awake Then there's this, which is the fourth one. Uh, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then it picks up the the, the pace, and at the end of the book, there's three more. Um, That you're blessed if you're resurrected in the first resurrection. Everybody's gonna be resurrected, but the question is, is it in the first or the second? And the blessing is for those who are in the first. Uh, You're blessed if you listen to the words of this prophecy, and you're blessed if you wash your robes We'll get to those later, but we'll see why tonight. So there's an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, I want you to know that you've received an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, It's right here. You didn't have to get it in the mail because it's right here in the Word of God. Every one of us has personally been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And oftentimes we talk about as Christians that we are the bride of Christ. And and that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying that. But to get more technical, the new Jerusalem, as we'll see, is the bride of Christ. So the church, we could say, but the church expanding beyond just the Gentile church we see today, but including the church going, all believers in all times, Jew and Gentile, the church, the called out ones, is the bride of Christ. But we individually have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in some of the parables of Jesus, uh, we're seen as the bride's maids. And some of them, uh, we may be seen as the bride. and other ones, we're invited, seen as guests. Uh, But it doesn't really matter because a parable exists as a parable just so that we'll learn what the parable is there for. And so there may be different examples. That doesn't mean we're not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ because we, are a part of the New Jerusalem. We are what the New Jerusalem is. Remember that a city is never just the buildings or the territory. If everybody moved out of the city of Yarrington and didn't live here anymore, it wouldn't be called Yarrington City. It would be called Yarrington Ghost Town. It's no longer a city. The city exists because of the people. The city is the people. So the New Jerusalem is the people. But I've said that so you can understand because sometimes as we read through those parables like the ten virgins, the five wise and the five foolish. Well, obviously the bridegroom isn't marrying all ten of those virgins. They're the bride's maids in that particular parable. But it doesn't diminish the fact that they represent the bride, and we we are the bride of Christ. So all these parables have application to us. And I want us to go over to Matthew chapter 22. To Matthew chapter 22. And I want us to look at one parable in particular that I believe is being referenced directly in Revelation 19, where it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So go with me to Matthew chapter 22. Everyone probably knows this parable, but I just want to read it. Beginning with verse one, it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The father gives a wedding feast for his son. And let me say something else. Most of you have never been to a real good old fashioned wedding feast. The kind that they're talking about here. Okay? Because I grew up in America and I had never been to a real wedding feast until I went to a wedding in Belarus. Okay? (laughs) I mean a wedding feast. You know, you see these kind of ways like my great big Greek my great big fat Greek wedding on these movies or something. You know, most Americans don't do these kind of weddings, okay? But a wedding feast is way more than the ceremony and a little bride's cake and a groom's cake and those little mints that we used to get when we were kids. I used to not like go to weddings until I went to a real wedding feast. It was like, I don't want those little mints and everything, and I got to go kiss the bride and all this stuff when I was a kid growing up in church. They never had very much food. But a wedding feast goes on for days, and it has food and drink unending, okay? It's a feast. And so when we read about a wedding feast for the Jewish mind that understands this in the first century, this is a feast, and all the more so because it's a feast of the king. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited so we could see the angels as the slaves, He sent out his, because the angels are often working here in the book of Revelation. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Please note that the slaves did not invite them to the wedding feast. The king invites them to the wedding feast. No man will come into the son unless he is drawn by the father, the scripture says. Jesus said that. That's one of the reasons why you should never get so terribly upset If you have witnessed and shared Christ with someone and they're not listening to you, because you have to understand you don't have the power to save them anyway. Take all the pressure off. All you have the power and the call to do is to be a witness and to share the Lord with them. But until the father draws them to the son, and sometimes that might take years, they're not going to come without the calling and the drawing of the father. So you shouldn't, you know, a lot of times we feel that pressure and being a witness for Jesus, and we shouldn't have that. We just are to be His witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't make people be converted. You know, we can't save them. That's, that's what God does. We are His witnesses. But notice that they had already been invited, and the slaves go out to call them to the wedding feast. They've already got the invitation, right? And it says... They went out to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and, and, and yet they were unwilling to come. They didn't want to come to the wedding feast. Verse 4, And again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who had been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, and another to his business. So another application of this that we could see in the big picture of the scripture, because Jesus is talking at these times about the Jews, is that God sent prophets to call the Jewish nation to the wedding feast, but they didn't want to come. And then he sent more prophets. So you have what are called the major and the minor prophets. You have prophets that Prophesied, and they're called that just because of the length of their books, but you had prophets that prophesied before the captivity. You have prophets that prophesied during the Babylonian captivity and after the Babylonian captivity. And with each prophet, the, the revelation increased, but the people still refused to come. And then it says in verse 6, And the rest seized his slaves, the prophets, the angels, they mistreated them, and they killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So understand, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Then he said to to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So in Revelation it says, Blessed are those who are called. Blessed are those who have been invited to the wedding feast. And I think as Christians today, we much easier identify, much more readily identify ourselves with those who were called off the streets, both evil and good. It's very obvious that the first part is talking directly to the Jews, that the gospel goes to the Jews first, but they refuse to come. But I want you to see something that's really important in this parable, and I think it's really the whole purpose of this parable is what happens at the end. That even if you came to the wedding feast, you're out on the streets and the slaves came and said, first of all, I want you to see it's really important for God to have all the seats filled. Okay, God doesn't like empty seats. I mean, literally, I don't, I don't think God really totally gets it why people don't want to show up on Tuesday evening. <laughs> You know, I don't really think God understands why we don't want to remember the Sabbath and come every Sunday to church. And, you know, it's easy for me to say that because I'm a pastor, and that sounds like a real pastoral thing to say because we just want more people to come to church. But God wants to see the seats filled. He wants to see people in church. You know, he doesn't want to see people just pray the sinner's prayer and keep on living their lives the way they live their lives. He wants to see them come into the ark, get into the boat, and be completely saved. So the king is not happy if there's gonna be a wedding feast and there's not very many people there because you know, that's kind of embarrassing. Most of us are gonna be dead at our own funerals. In fact, all of us are. <laughs> but if we were alive, we'd sure want to have a lot of people there, wouldn't we? And we'd want them to say nice things about us, wouldn't we? You know? And if our children have a wedding, we sure don't want nobody to show up. You, know, you bought all that food for nothing, you got this feast going on, nobody's there. So the king says, I don't care who it is, but you get guests in here. You go out there and you just find them. Go to the Gentiles, you bring them all in. The Italians, the Scots, the British, the Russians, I don't care who they are. They're not Jews, but get them in here. And so the gospel goes out to all the nations. But when the wedding begins, the king's walking around and he's really happy. But he sees someone there who doesn't have the wedding clothes on. You know, today it would be like the tuxedo or something. He just came in in his street clothes. He came as he is. And I want you to understand that the dress code is set by the king. And there's a lot in here about washing our clothes and having pure and white linen. And the blessings, it's been in the book of Revelation already, and it's going to be in this chapter, and that it's going to continue on further. We have to understand that God has a dress code. And he's not just, we we love to say this, come as you are. But that's not really true. (laughs) It's just not really true. I mean, come to the wedding feast as, as you are. But you're going to be offered clothes to change into. You're going to have the opportunity to be born again. You're going to come into the kingdom and you're going to wash your linen and you're going to be white as snow. You're going to be clean and pure before the king. You don't just... Come as you are. No bride would go to her wedding just dressed as she is. And Jerry showed me some really cool pictures from his niece's wedding. My niece just had a wedding in Oregon. And I got to tell you, that girl, he showed me his niece and my niece at her wedding. They are so beautiful. Just so beautiful. I love to look at the, you know, I love to look at Stephen's wedding pictures too. You know, but there's something special about looking at your daughter's wedding pictures. You know, you see Nastia and Bethany, and they're like, oh my gosh, look how beautiful they are and everything. And so, Yeah, Stephen looked handsome, but compared to Rita, he didn't look like anything compared to Rita. You know, it's that bride that it's all about, right? So this guy shows up at the wedding feast, and he's not dressed in the right clothes. And here's what I want you to understand the result is exactly the same. He could have just not come in the first place. And in fact, it's probably worse because now he's going to be kicked out, thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot of times people ask me, well, what does that mean? Does that mean when Jesus talks about that, does that mean they're going to go to hell? Is that some kind of purgatory? Is that some?" And, and you know, I'm, I'm just am to be honest. I don't know 100% what it means. I just know it means I don't want to find out what it means. If Jesus talks about a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, that means a place of such regret that you can never fix it. And I don't, I don't want to ever find out what that is. So if we come to the wedding feast and we're called to the wedding feast, then the call alone is not enough. The blessing comes when we answer that call by faith. And we wash our clothes in the blood of the Lamb. And we become clean before our God. And we stand before him in, in, in purity and in whiteness. Oftentimes we think of just, well, Jesus is going to, But you hear this phrase a lot, Jesus is preparing for himself a bride. But you'll notice in the book of Revelation, that's true. But there's an awful lot of responsibility put on the bride herself that she prepare herself for the wedding. And of course we cannot do that without his grace. Of course we cannot do that without his help. But he cannot do it without our faith. And he's not going to do it without us being faithful to him and choosing to come and be at the wedding feast. So it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But in those words we hear the words of the parable, Many are called, but few are are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So let's look at this angel for just a minute. Uh, This angel that's speaking to him, if we go all the way back to chapter 17, uh, verse 1, because it's not really clear unless you take it all the way back in the context. It says, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, So this same angel, one of the ones with the seven bulls, continues to speak with him. And this has been going on for some time that he's been speaking with him. Uh, He's an angel of God's wrath. He's an angel who is pouring out God's wrath on the earth. But the wrath of God is being poured out on on the earth in order to cleanse the earth and prepare the earth for the coming of the king, to prepare the wedding supper of the Lamb. This angel's been speaking with John way back in chapter 1. And finally, something happens that, that, that is quite amazing when you think of how well John knew Jesus. Okay? He's so overcome with the glory of this angel that he bows down and begins to worship the angel himself. Right? And this happens not only once, it happens twice. It'll happen again in chapter 22 and verse 8. And this is an opportunity that is taken by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures to teach us something that's important. When the angel says to him, do not do that. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. And he says, you worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is a key scripture in the book of Revelation, that the spirit of this prophecy, the book of Revelation, it's not the testimony of the Antichrist, it's not the testimony of the seven bulls, it's not the testimony of the seven seals or the seven trumpets, it's not the testimony of the dragon, it's not the testimony of 666, this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you cannot parse it and take one part and throw away another part. In fact, there'll be a warning at the end of the book that says if you do that, you will lose your place in the very kingdom of God. You cannot just cut parts of the scripture out and ignore it. That this comes together as a package, as a word that's spoken by God, that this is the testimony of Jesus. And so he speaks to John, but I believe this is in the scripture because it's a word to us that's saying, worship God. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship God. If if John could worship an angel, well, I don't know if any of you have ever seen an angel, okay? But I'm going to be honest with you. As far as I know, I've never had a vision of an angel in my life. And as far as I know, I don't need one. If I need one, God will send one to me. I'm not looking for one. If I need one, he'll send one to me. That may be that I've had angels unawares. I can think of a couple of opportunities, a couple of times when I think that that's what happened, but I don't know for 100% sure. I didn't see, you know, like Gabriel come and talk to me or something like that. But it's possible that you could be so overcome by the glory and the aura of this angel that you would worship him. If that's possible for John, that's possible for us. But here's something interesting this is possible with men also who are sent by God, that you begin to worship them instead of worship God. And here's something that you can know a true prophet from a false prophet, because one, one way, a true prophet will never receive your worship. A true pro- prophet will never receive your honor without giving that honor to Jesus. A true prophet will not seek that for himself, because even this angel would not allow that to happen for himself. So let's go on to verse 11 now. And this is the coming of Jesus. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. We're back. Hallelujah. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Verse 15. So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So this brings us around again to this vision of Armageddon with the second coming of Jesus. And I'm just loosely calling this Armageddon, this last uh, great, great battle. It's actually not the last one in the book of Revelation. Okay, number one, I want to remind you of what we already talked about this last week, but I want you to notice the uh, the militancy. Is that a word? <laughs> the militant uh, description of Jesus coming back. He's not coming back like some, you know, sweet little uh, Jesus who's just going to say, oh, it's okay, everybody, I just forgive you you know no i mean he said when i come back there's going to be some who many he said who are going to say to me lord lord did we not cast out demons in your name he'll he's going to say depart from me i never knew you i mean this is serious serious business he comes back and in coming his full divinity is is revealed it says i saw the heavens opened and there's this white horse uh, that his eyes are a flame of fire Uh, His name is faithful and true, righteous, judge, the warrior, the Lord of hosts. And it says that there's a name that he has that nobody knows, and only he knows that name. Well, that name is the name Yahweh. It's the name of God. It's a name that nobody knows. Moses asked God, what is your name? Because nobody knows his name. And God said to him, I am who I am which means i uh, the the existing one yahweh and then though that name is written in the hebrew letters in the old testament it was never spoken by any jew they never spoke that name therefore nobody even really knows how to pronounce day. is it jehovah is it yahweh is it yahweh is it some other version of that but what this what's being said to us when it says that he has a name that no one knows except himself That's simply saying he is God. That he is God and that his name is then, it says, the word of God. So he is the word of God. He is God. He is the faithful, the true, the righteous judge. He is the warrior. He is the Lord of hosts. Go with me over to Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read, beginning with verse 1. And, and Frank, we will be going home pretty soon. We're, we're going to try to get through all this. We're going to take a little time. I just don't want to skip over some of these verses because they're so, this is just a key point in the book. It says in verse 1 of chapter 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Okay, who's that? That's, who, yeah, who's Jesse? That's David's dad, right? So a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. So a shoot will spring out of the stem of the line of David, right? And a branch from his roots will bear fruit from the roots of Jesse. And then it says, and we've read this already, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, of counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Remember the seven spirits of the Lord in the book of Revelation. And we referenced this verse when we talked about that because there are seven spirits of the lord what that's false doctrine no there's one holy spirit but there are seven faces or seven aspects of the holy spirit and in his fullness he is number one the spirit of the lord the spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding the spirit of counsel the spirit of strength the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the lord that's seven spirits of the lord which are one Holy Spirit. And that's good news for us to know that Holy Spirit dwells in us. Verse 3. And he, he, Jesus then, will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den they will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea so it begins speak this this is the whole gospel the whole new testament in a nutshell what we just read it begins with the birth of jesus and it leads all the way through to the millennial king the millennial kingdom and the reign of jesus christ on on this earth that we're going to be getting into in chapter 20. but notice that it says uh he will not judge by what his eyes see that he will not show any partiality that he is faithful and true that he is the righteous judge. You know, people show partiality, but Jesus Christ will not show partiality. He will judge the righteous, judge righteously the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted uh, of, of the earth. So these are his names. He is this righteous judge. He is the word of God. His eyes are a flame of fire, something we've already seen in Daniel and we've seen earlier in Revelation. It says that he has a multitude of diadems, on his head and i talked about this earlier but diadems are not the same as crowns crowns when it talks about the crowns that are on the heads of the kings these are not diadems a crown is something given to a victor a diadem is something that belongs only to royalty someone who is truly royal and so because he has multitude of diadems he is the king of kings and it says that his robe is dipped in blood So I want to go over to Isaiah 63. Now I'm almost done for tonight. Isaiah 63. We're almost to a place we can stop. Isaiah 63 and verse uh, verse 1. Isaiah 63 verse 1. It says his robe is dipped in blood. Isaiah 63 verse 1. It says, who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing or scarlet it's what it literally says scarlet colors from Bozra. so you have to understand Edom that's Esau Jacob's brother it's a nation that grew up out of Esau Jacob's brother and Edom is the enemy of Israel in the Old Testament and God told Israel not to offend or to attack Edom when they came out of the land of Egypt because this is your brother Esau. Okay, Bozrah is the capital city of Edom. There are two main cities in Edom, Bozrah and Petra, which was in, a, in the rocks, in these red, red rocks that are still there. And yet Edom, when Israel was passing through, molested Israel and uh, offended Israel and refused to allow Israel to pass through their territory and fought against Israel. And then Edom later in scripture rejoiced when the Babylonians took Israel into captivity. And at that moment from then on, the prophets bring uh, the, the, the word of God against Edom, okay, against the nation of Esau. So what does Edom represent? Edom represents those who rejected Christ from the nations of the earth. Edom represents those who have treated God's people with contempt. And those who have rejoiced in the failures or the downfall of God's people those who have been the enemy of God's people even though they should have supported that and that's going to be really important when we move on here a little bit further not tonight but we're going to be looking at this judgment and separation between the sheep and the goats and the sheep nations are those who treated Christ with respect and treated his people with respect And the goat nations are those who were Edomites, who were like Edom. So it says that he's coming from Edom with garments that are colored scarlet, the color of blood from Bozrah. And it says, who is this one? This one who is majestic in his apparel. So he's a king that's covered in blood, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then the answer, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save And then the question again, why is your apparel red in your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? And then he says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. So vengeance and redemption go hand in hand Let's think about that for a minute because we don't usually think in those terms about God But vengeance and redemption go hand in hand there can be you know the redemption is not going to become because the right people get voted into office in November and that having said that I hope the right people do get voted into office in in November But that's not going to bring redemption to our nation. Redemption comes together with a cleansing, with vengeance. And that cleansing, that judgment begins in the house of God. It begins with our hearts turning back to God in repentance. And so vengeance and redemption go hand in hand. I looked and there was no one to help, Jesus is saying prophetically. And I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. Do you you think Jesus is astonished that nobody's on his side? I tell you that Jesus is astonished at the lack of support he has in our nation today. He's astonished by it. He says, I was astonished there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. Remember this is coming at the end of these seven bowls of wrath being poured out. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their life blood upon the earth." So we see that when Jesus is coming back, and you could read on uh, from there in these scriptures, but when Jesus is coming back, he's coming back in great wrath. He's not coming back with a sweet little smile on his face. He's coming back and he's being greeted, not by us. Because if you recall, we're already up there with him at the seventh trumpet. We have been resurrected. The dead in Christ have been resurrected, the first resurrection. And we who are alive and remain. And we're actually coming back with him. See, we are actually described there in Revelation 19 also. Because it says that he has an army with him. And they're all on white horses. Okay, if you always want to have a white horse, you're going to get one eventually. If you don't like horses, tough luck. God will help you get over your allergies and fear. You're going to have a white horse, whatever that means. But the white horse is a symbol of the victor, right? And Jesus comes on that white horse. The Antichrist came on a white horse with the first seal. But that was a false victory, an Antichrist. This is the real victory. This is the real Christ. And we will all come back with him on white horses. And it says we will be clothed with white linen, that we have washed our clothes in the blood of the Lamb. And his robe is dipped in blood. And as we've already read concerning Armageddon, that the blood is going to flow, you know, up to the, the bridle of the horse for, you know, this whole area we talked about that, that there's going to be a great destruction of armies on the earth. So the first thing that happens when Jesus comes back, according to this vision that we have in chapter 19 is a battle he's coming in battle he's coming in war okay you think of you could probably think of it if you thought about it you could probably think of several good hollywood movies that you like when finally the calvary or somebody shows up over the hill and brings salvation to this earth and that that's what he's coming to do to make battle and who's gathered against him is the antichrist And all the kings of the earth are gathered together with the Antichrist to make war against him. Then there's one other thing I want to point out here. That it says on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. So he has a name written here on his thigh. Okay. And just look at me for a minute. So this part of the thigh that we usually call the groin is actually really important prophetically in the scripture. He has a name written on his thigh. That's not just a throw-out little phrase here in the book of Revelation. It's an important word. And it says that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 24, we would read about the thigh of Abraham. And when Abraham sent his servant to find a bride for his son, Right? he made his servant place his hand under his thigh I'm not going to do the movement because it would be embarrassing for me but place his hand under his thigh right into his groin and that sounds kinda strange to you but you have to understand he made him swear an oath what was the oath he was swearing he was swearing an oath on the seed of Abraham you understand the thigh represents the seed for obvious reasons he was swearing the oath on the seed of Abraham that he would not do that seed wrong who is that seed that seed is Jesus and Jesus was in Abraham on that day and he swore an oath to Jesus that he would not do Abraham wrong by finding the wrong wife for his son don't think that it's not a big deal to God who your kids marry it's a huge deal to god god has the right person for them and so he had to go and he had to find rebecca for for isaac right and then jacob abraham's grandson when he met god and wrestled with god and god could have just beat him up right away obviously the angel of the lord there because at the end he does just beat him up but he just lets jacob wrestle with him and wrestle with him and then the angel says to him i've got to go because the sun is rising and you can't see my face and jacob says tough luck i will not let go of you until you bless me and then it says that the angel touches him in the socket of his thigh right where the where the thigh bone joins the hip the exact same place where his grandfather, Abraham, commanded the servant to take an oath on that place. And so what this is symbolizing is that the angel touched him in his seed, okay? And he wounded him greatly. It seems like he got a really nasty hernia there physically or something happened because he couldn't walk anymore normally, and he continued to limp with that thing to the end of his life. But having been wounded, it's a weird story. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> not that long ago I read a guy's testimony that said that because of that story I became a Christian and I thought well that's interesting and I read on into his testimony and he just talked about I struggled with God for so long and people told me that it wasn't that it was bad to struggle with God and one day I heard somebody preaching that story and I realized it's not bad to struggle with God God wants you to struggle with him God wants you to engage him you know and he wants you to to pour your heart out before him he wants wants you to hunger after a blessing so bad that you won't let go of him and Jacob refused to let go of him you know no matter how bad that hurt him he would not let go of him until he blessed him and he said okay I'm going to bless you and that's when his name was changed to Israel because Jacob all his life had fought for that blessing and yeah he had been a schemer and a cheater and a liar and all these things but he did all those bad things in the name of I want a blessing and I think on, at one point, God finally got up and said, hey, somebody really wants a blessing down there. Let's send the blessing. You know, when you really want that blessing, it doesn't matter whether it belongs to you or not. God's going to get you that blessing because you want that blessing so bad. And so the angel touched the seed of, of Jacob and and wounded him in that seed. And and You know we could talk about this for hours but prophetically it's speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ really that Jesus went to the cross and was wounded as the seed of Abraham as the the seed of God he's the Son of Man and the Son of God and he was wounded for our salvation so it's very significant that at this very same place he has written that I am coming as the king of kings and the lord of lords as the fulfillment of the promise made to eve when i said when god said that the seed of this woman will crush the serpent's head and this is the final crushing of the servant's head in the coming of jesus christ and not only does he have this robe dip in blood, but it says we have robes on and our robes are washed. They are cleansed. They're white linen. I'll end with this, but the Greek word for robe is stali. That's where we get the word stole, like a mink stole or something like that. But this word stali doesn't mean robe like bathrobes that we wear, okay? It doesn't mean soft robes like somebody would wear to look pretty. The the original meaning of this is the robe which is the priestly garment And it's the robe which the warrior would wear in battle. It's a working robe It's a robe that a person wears when he's girded for battle It's a robe that they wear when they are girded uh, To serve uh, the Lord uh, To serve the Lord God as a priest before him Okay, so Obviously Jesus wins this battle Uh, It's waged and it's won in an instant by his word and with his word. But there's a few things I want to point out about that that I think are really significant and important, but we're going to do that next week. So we'll just stay with what we have because that's enough for one evening, especially with all the interruptions we've had. (laughs) Amen. Let's stand together. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at EarringtonVisionFellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.